please be seated. Well, we're continuing our sermon series on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And we've come to the questions that deal with the Eighth Commandment. And uh, did uh, everybody get a handout for this that needs it? All right. So we're going to be confessing these questions on the handout page. We're, we're, we've come to the Eighth Commandment. Last week we did an introduction to it, and so we looked at the Eighth Commandment itself. And now we're coming to uh, do the question 74 and 75 as well. So we'll, we'll do question 73, 74, and 75. We'll, we'll confess these together. Question 73. Which is the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment is, Thou shalt not steal. Question 74. What is required in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. Question 75. What is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. Now, I just want to mention what the wealth and outward estate is. You know, that's basically what we own. To our, uh, it's our overall material condition in the world. That's basically what it boils down to. Last week, I showed you some foundational truths that we need to understand if we're going to understand the Eighth Commandment. And we can sum up these truths that we need to know in this way. First, that the Lord owns everything. And second, that he gives things to us to own as he pleases. So he can give, he can take away as he wishes. Now today I want to look at an important implication of this. Namely, we should respect the property that God has given to our neighbor and make sure that we do not unjustly diminish or harm his wealth and outward estate, what God has given to him. God gave it to him. In looking at this subject today, I want to begin by looking at what it is to respect your neighbor's property, then at some of the ways that we unjustly diminish our neighbor's wealth or outward estate, then at the lame excuses that we make to try to justify doing that, to try to justify what is stealing, and finally at some of the things that will help us to keep this commandment. Just a few things on that to sum up. So let's move into our first point. We will have our scripture reading in just a few minutes that's related to this. So the first point, what is it to respect your neighbor's property? Respecting your neighbor's property means that you treat it as, as valuable as, and as rightly belonging to him. In other words, that his things are valuable and that they rightly belong to him, not to someone else. You want your neighbor to have the things that he has, in other words. You respect it as that which belongs to him. Everyone can see that it's right and proper for you to be pleased if a hungry person has food in front of him. I'm glad that he has food. And it would be very wrong for you to want to see that, that food taken away from him. 
He's hungry. He's got food. You're glad that he does. Uh, it's right and proper for him to have that and for you to desire that. Or if you see a child delighting in a toy, you're, you're glad for that. It's his, something that he's been given. And you ought to be sad if you see it taken away, either food or a toy. This is obviously the right way for us to look at our neighbor's wealth, and anybody would, can see that. Of course, if it is right for you to be glad to see your neighbor enjoy what is his, it follows that it is very wrong for you to do something that is going to take away what rightly belongs to your neighbor, what God has given to your neighbor. So in our scripture reading, we're instructed about living as if the things of our neighbors are important. The reading is from Deuteronomy 22, verse 1 through 4. Listen carefully as I read it to you. This is Deuteronomy 22, the first four verses. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. So you act like, I didn't see that. You know, they're, they're, their animals are going astray and you're you're looking the other way and kind of walking by like this, you know, kind of look. <laughs> you know, oh, 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 I I didn't know about that, you know, that, that kind of thing. And if your brother is not near you, it says, or if you do not know him, you don't know who the animals belong to, then you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey. And so shall you do with his garment. With any lost thing of your brother's which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. Again, I, oh, I didn't see that. You know, you're pretending you, you, you don't notice. While it speaks about our neighbor's ox or sheep or donkey, Of course, we're to apply it to everything that our neighbor owns. That's the way Old Testament law works. It gives you examples, and you're supposed to be smart enough to say, okay, I guess that applies. If it applies to his his shirt, then it applies to his uh, shoes as well. You you have to to figure a few things out like that to do Hebrew law. Uh, We're to do our part in looking out for everything that belongs to our neighbor. But if we're honest about this, we all have to admit that we really don't care about our neighbor's property as much as we should. Very often we're unwilling to inconvenience ourselves in order to take care of what belongs to other people. Unless we have extremely hard hearts, we can easily see that we ought to care about what is our neighbor. But what is it that gets in the way? Our sin. Sin gets in the way. Too often we are selfish and greedy. We want, to, we want what our neighbor has for ourselves, even though God gave it to our neighbor. And so we're not really interested in helping out to preserve what's his because we wished it was ours. Or maybe we resent our neighbor and think that he has more than his share or more than he deserves. You know, somebody else deserves that. This attitude keeps us from expending much effort to look after what he has, and it often leads to even taking what is his in various ways or damaging what is his, diminishing his wealth. Let's look at six ways that we do that. Six ways that we show contempt for our neighbor's wealth and diminish our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. We will begin with the worst of all the violations of the eighth commandment, man-stealing or kidnapping. 
The thing that is stolen in this case is not a thing, but it is a person. Ordinarily, the penalty for stealing in God's law is restitution. You have to restore what you have taken plus pay a penalty, and it's double when you've taken something from your neighbor. So in a way, it is the same thing. But in this case, you took a person, and so then that means you have to give up your life. It's a capital offense, according to the scripture. When you steal a person, the penalty is your death. You restore the person that you took, and you get executed. Exodus 21.16 says, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So we see from this that what Joseph's brothers did to him when they sold him to Egypt was actually a capital offense in God's Old Testament law. It was very serious. They deserved to be put to death. Now, people aren't always prosecuted according to the full extent of the law, and not even do they necessarily have to be so, but uh, we need to realize that that is a, a proper penalty for kidnapping. We may think that man-stealing is a rare occurrence in our day, but it's actually a whole lot more common than we think, a whole lot more common. There are countries where persecution of Christians is common, and often they're taken to and put to forced labor, like part of that happening in, in Pakistan, even in places like that. Women are sometimes taken as concubines in those places. This doesn't get a lot of media attention, but there are groups like the Voice of the Martyrs that will document some of these cases that you can read about, some of these crimes. And then there's the human trafficking and slavery that goes on. Stats I saw a few years ago estimate that the sale of humans generates about $7 billion a year and that their labor, that's the sale of, the, of humans, and the, uh, their labor generates about $150 billion a year. Those, of course, estimates because people don't file taxes for this stuff, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, they've, they've done studies. It's estimated that there are over 20 million victims in, of this kind of uh, human trafficking. The U.S. State Department has estimated something around 50,000 who are forcibly working as prostitutes in the USA. That's pretty amazing. Forcibly working, not voluntarily so, but forced to do so. We've uh, even encountered some situations like that with acquaintances that we have. Man-stealing is especially offensive because it is a form of stealing that harms your neighbor the most. It harms both the one who has stolen as well as the family from which he is stolen that is deprived of their, their, whoever it is, their relative. May God help us to abhor this sin as much as he does. He commands us to love one another, and so we need to you know, militate against this sin. Another form of stealing, and the one that we often think of first, is robbery. That's kind of the classic thing you think of, you know, going and grabbing something, stealing something out of a store or something like that. This is an obvious violation of the Eighth Commandment. Leviticus 19.13 says, You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. Everyone but the ridiculous agrees that robbery is wrong. Robbery is an aggravated form of stealing because it endangers people's lives and is often associated with violence and death. You're forcibly taking things. The robber will break into a person's home or business, and often he's armed in case he meets resistance. Or he may assault his victim on the street so as to take his money or his possessions by force. The robber shows a disregard not only for his neighbor's property, 
but also for his neighbor's life and, um, and body. For this cause, according to God's law, a man is excused if in protecting his home, he kills a robber who breaks into his house at night when he can't the idea of the night thing, again, the Hebrew law, you need to have wisdom to apply it. The idea is that you can't see what's happening. You don't know what the guy's doing. You hear someone in your house. He's not supposed to be there. Uh, it's, it, it, there's warrant to defend yourself. That's the principle we get out of it, that if your life is in danger from a robber, it could be in the broad daylight. But if your life is in danger from a robber, then you can defend yourself. Use lethal force against him and bear no guilt. But again, it's not just a across the blanket. If you could, you know, do it in a way that's not lethal and restrain him, that would be preferred. When no injury occurs, the robber has to, when he robs and he hasn't injured someone, then the penalty for his stealing is what I mentioned before. He has to pay double. This is in Exodus 22.4. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, so he's got whatever he stole, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. So he has to find, give one, one of his own animals or find uh, another one that he buys or whatever. It would be a great improvement to our legal system if restitution were imposed on robbers today. Putting someone in jail where they don't work for a number of years, and uh, that's not the way to help. If anything, even forced labor would be appropriate for robbery, that they have to, if they won't work and pay back, then they have to, because then they feel the weight of what they did to their neighbor. This is what you have to do to make up that loss that you took. This is how valuable that is. You have to do all this work to be able to pay for what you took, not only to give it back to them what you took, but to now give them equal to what you took. It's a wonderful law that God has. Um, cutting off a neighbor, a, a robber's hand, like some societies have done before, is not warranted according to God's law. That's, that's going too far. A third form of stealing is stealing by extortion and bribes. This is often the sin of those in authority who use their authority to extract what rightly belongs to their neighbor. Bribes are sometimes demanded by government officials before they'll give you permission to come into their country or to bring something in. The government official will use his authority in order to make a personal profit. A lot of nations where that happens. It's rather common practice in a lot of countries, probably more common than we think. I've heard that even with officers in North America that would stop someone on the road and you know, they would threaten to give them a, a big ticket and maybe they hadn't done anything, they hadn't really been speeding like they said or something. And then they uh, say, "Well, if you if you can give me some cash right now, you know, then then it'll, it'll be it'll be done. Like I won't, or maybe they did worse speeding, and they're going to give them a big ticket, but instead they they get them to pay pay them in cash and and go on their way. Extortion is where one wrongfully uses authority to threaten or force another to give up his property. That's basically what it comes down to. In many ways, it could be argued that certain forms of taxation are extortion." such as an inheritance tax or a property tax. It doesn't mean that they should not be paid, though. Rather, it means that those who are collecting them are not doing the right thing. They should not be allowed in a society. Property taxes are like rent that a man has to pay on his own land. And God recognizes ownership of land by individuals, not by the government. 
And if the government feels that they own everything, then they make you pay rent instead of uh, seeing that it belongs to God. The pagan concept of ownership is just that, that the king or the government owns the land, and so the rent is paid by property taxes. The Bible teaches this different way, though. That in the Old Testament, each person had his inheritance, and the governing authorities were not permitted to, to seize it. We looked not too long ago with Jezebel, and of course, she was the daughter of a pagan king. And when she married Ahab, then he wanted Naboth's vineyard, and she said, well, you're the king. Like, what do, you, what do you mean? If you want it, take it. You know, and then, she, and then she did that. We must be careful about being overly critical, though, about property taxes, because some of the some property taxes are actually just. They're for services in a community, like garbage pickup and um, maintaining the, you know, ditch on the side of the road, maybe, and uh, uh, taking care of um, different kinds of uh, uh, maybe fire and, um, and that sort of thing that are, are involved in that. So it's, it's not that property taxes are necessarily always unjust. Again, we have to use our wisdom as we think about these things and see what's really going on. It's also not always those in authority who do this extorting, though. In our democratic society, in a way, you're an authority because the, the people are an authority in a democracy, or at least they're supposed to be. It's... it's Reputed to be that way. It's really not often, but that's, that's what's supposed to be. In our democratic society, we have found ways for those not in office to extort what belongs to their neighbors, or at least to sort of do that, <laughs> to impose authority that forces their neighbor to hand over their wealth. This is done by voting in politicians who promise that we're going to raise taxes on the rich and distribute to the poor and the middle class. While it's true that throughout history and even today, the rich have often oppressed the poor, it doesn't justify the poor imposing legislation by the power of the democracy upon the rich to take their riches for themselves. We are to respect the property that God has given to our neighbors. Big business has found another way to extort, and that is to bribe politicians to buy their services of, uh, uh, or, or things that they have, their, their produce with public funds. If I can get the government to buy what I'm manufacturing with public money, with tax money, then I've got a great thing going. I don't have to market it. And if I can pay a politician to set up a situation where my business is, is doing something and the government is paying for all of it with tax money, then the politician gets something from me and I get a whole lot from my business that I'm doing. And where does it come from? The pockets of all the people who are paying taxes. So you see there's all kinds of different tricks that are used. Another form of extortion that's very common today is the seizure of another's wealth through vexatious lawsuits. I mean, it's one thing to collect for damages, but quite another to look at an accident is, oh, had an accident. I wonder what I can get out of this. And the lawyer calls you up and he's thinking, what can I get? There was an accident. What can I get out of it? My mom had a little incident where she was in the passenger seat with one of her friends. They were just driving across the bridge and somebody changed lanes and just kissed the side of their car. And the police came, you know, to look at the damages and figure out who was to blame, all that kind of stuff. And the other person was at blame. They changed lanes, didn't see. And uh, the police officer asked my mom, uh, you know, what her, na- what her name was. And it was like, she thought it was kind of strange, but she gave it to him. 
And then a, a week or two later, she got a call, and it was a, a lawyer. He said, I understand you were in an accident. I'm wondering if you were injured, right? It's like he was trying to, he was trying to get business. She wasn't injured at all. There was no report of any dam, damage like that. But um, this police officer, I'm sure he gets a little bit from that. From the, from the, he, he was taking these records and, and letting other, other people know about this so that, uh, you know, this is, this is a society where spilling coffee on yourself or getting a divorce or having a minor car accident can make you rich. You know, and it's a wrong use of authority to get money in your own pocket. So those who get rich in this way get rich by exploiting their neighbor. Extortion is offensive because it uses force, legal force, that ought to be used only in the name of God. You know, it's using that name, using God's name to steal. It's for this reason that Ezekiel accuses those who do this of forgetting God. He says, Ezekiel twenty-two twelve. If you take if if you take bribes to shed blood, you take usury and increase. I'm sorry, I didn't read that right. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. You have made profit from your neighbors by extortion, and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. And that's what I want you to see that. When you use extortion, you forget God. You forget that he's the one in authority. You act like, if I can get away with this, if I can use the law to get rich, then I got away with it. Because I use the law, I'm not going to get in trouble. Yes, you will. Because God, you've forgotten God when you do that. A fourth way of violating the eighth commandment is oppression. Oppression involves profiting from your neighbor or brother or your brother or sister's weakness. Using his or her weakness to get more out of your neighbor than is just and right. The oppressor rejoices when he finds a poor chap who is desperate. Here is this poor fellow trying to sell something to provide for his family, to pay a bill that's come due. And the oppressor says, aha, I've got him where I want him now. I should be able to get this for a song. He's selling something, you know, that he's got he's to pay a bill. I could probably get that for half price. I can make a big profit on that. So instead of offering his neighbor a just price, he holds out for half that much, knowing that this fellow will probably give in. Why not give the fellow a little extra help in his time of need? That would be the Christian thing to do. And the oppressor does the same thing in hiring him. He says, oh, this fellow is desperate for work. I wonder what he'll take. I bet I, can only, I won't have to pay him very much. I can get a lot of work out of this guy. And what's worse, the oppressor is happy if he can have a whole society of people who are desperate. He's motivated to keep them desperate as long as possible. If they're barely given enough to survive, then he can get really long hours out of them for very little expense. The oppressor who takes advantage of the needy person when he sells something to him, like that's another, another kind of oppression, uh, taking advantage of them when there's trouble. If a hurricane is coming and everyone needs plywood to board up their homes, what will the oppressor do? Well, you say, oh, he's got some plywood, so he'll jack up the price. Well, yeah, that's pretty bad. But the worst thing is that he'll go and buy up, as soon as he hears a hurricane is coming, he'll buy up all the plywood in the community, and then he'll jack the price way up and have a control of all, all the plywood. He'll buy it at the normal price and then sell it to everybody for a very high price. Or he'll form a cartel with just ordinary crops or something like that, 
or put the crops in uh, and then put the crops, burn them up or put them in storage or something like that to create an artificial shortage. And then he can jack up the price because he's got the control. Proverbs eleven twenty six says the people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. In other words, he, hold, he withholds it in order to create a, create a shortage that's not really there. The seed companies have been genetically modifying seeds so that the plants that grow from them don't produce seeds. So you, you have a crop, you know, like a wheat crop or something like that, and it won't reproduce. And so then you have to come to the seed company to plant your next crop. You always have to go to the seed company. You can't get your own seeds anymore. So then they can jack up the price however high they want because everybody's dependent on them. It's like, it's like trying to get patent on something that God made. You know, God made crops that have seeds in them that grow and you, you make a new crop that doesn't have that and now you can sell people, you know, oh, I've got the seeds here that you need for that because <laughs> you, you took that ability away from it. The scripture forbids also all kinds of oppression. For example, Leviticus 25, 14 says, And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. Instead of, profess, profess, instead of oppressing your neighbor when he's in difficulty, you should try to help him out. And understand that your neighbor includes strangers as well as your brothers in the Lord. Exodus twenty two twenty one, 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, I could also mention, I should also mention oppressive usury, which means charging interest. This is another way of oppressing a poor man. Loan him some money, but make him pay back at the highest rate that you can squeeze out of him. This is strictly prohibited by the Lord. For example, in Deuteronomy twenty-three nineteen, it says, You shall not charge interest to your brother, Interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. What a far cry it is to charge interest to your brother from what was done in the early church. What was done in the early church? They took of their wealth and they gave it to those who had need. And here you say, oh, there's someone in need. I'm going to charge them really high interest and loan them a bit of money. I'm going to get something out of this. However, interest can be charged in a way that's not oppressive. Again, we have to think about these things. It is oppressive when your brother is desperate, but if he's buying a house or starting a business, it's acceptable to charge him interest in that case. You you have to use judgment in the matter. If he wants to borrow from you to go on a luxury vacation, then go ahead and charge him a, a, a high price on it. But, uh, you know, he doesn't need it if he wants to go, if he wants to pay that much for it and go before he has the money saved up, do what you want. But if he needs groceries, like you don't charge him high interest for food that he needs. Let, the oppre- let oppression be something that's far from you. God's blessing is promised to us if we're generous, but his curse if we oppress. Psalm 72, 4 tells us what Jesus, our king, does in his kingdom. He will bring justice to the poor of the people, it says. He will save the children of the needy, and he will break in pieces the oppressor. Think about that. He'll break him in pieces. That's serious language. Fifth, cheating is a way that we deprive our neighbor of what is rightfully his. One way of cheating your neighbor is by exaggerating the quantity of goods that you're selling. 
the use of um, diverse weights and diverse measures is the way that the Bible talks about it. In Proverbs 20, verse 10, it says, diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now that's a way of cheating where, okay, they would weigh out things. So you would have a weight that was, say, it, was, it said it was two pounds, but it's less than two pounds. So he's, uh, he's selling you some grain. And so you get out the weight that's a little bit less than two pounds. It says it's two pounds. And you put it on the balance and you put his grain on. So you get, it's less than two, it's less than two pounds. And uh, am I doing that backwards? Yeah, I'm, I'm selling him the grain. And so I use my, my lightweight. And then he gives me his money. And so then I get out my other weight that is actually heavier than, than whatever, you know, two ounces maybe of money that he's giving me. And so I put that weight on here and then he's got to give me more money for that grain. So I, I profit on both sides of it. That's the diverse weights and diverse measures that you're using. Uh, even though we have rigid standards about packaging and people can't really get away with lying about the you know, contents and that sort of thing very easily, companies find ways to deceive. Many times containers are designed to look like they're much bigger than they really are. Like the middle of the container will be really skinny and then the top and bottom will be thick and it looks like it's got the same amount as one next to it. But if you read this fine print, then you see that it's not. Um, sometimes you have a big recess in the bottom of a, of, of a container that sticks up really high and makes it less than it really is. Chickens are sometimes filled with water to make them look plumper than they really are and to increase the weight. And then, you know, you, oh, here's, uh, you know, five pounds, here's four pounds, you know, whatever. The one is, is heavier than the other. So people are not getting what they're paying for. Incidentally, a godly response to this commandment was the baker's dozen, in which it became customary for bakers when they made rolls or something like that, and they sell a dozen rolls, then they would um, throw an extra one in just to make sure that the person got what they were paying for. They didn't say, I'm throwing an extra one in. They just did it. It was a baker's dozen. That's a very good way to do business. Give a little bit extra to make sure that you're giving them what, what they think they're getting. But of course, the way we do it now is we say, um, big sign on it, special bonus, 25% more for the same price. We, we, we make sure that they know that, that it's there, which is not the idea here. The idea is that you give them, you make sure that they get what they think they're getting rather than telling them that they're getting the extra. Okay, uh, so that's a good way to do with everything that we do, our work and everything. A second way to exaggerate the value of what you sell is to exaggerate the, the quality. So that was quantity and then the quality. Proverbs 21.6, getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. This is the way of the used car salesman and even more of the snake oil salesman. The guy who has the one supplement that you really need to give you everything from low cholesterol to a perfect body. You know, you just take this, you'll never be sick again, you'll never have cancer, you'll never have heart disease. We, we went to a chiropractor one time that literally said that, you know, if, if you come to him regularly, like he said, there's different ways you can do this. You can come when you have a problem or you can come every week and you can get this treatment and you won't ever have a heart attack, you'll never have cancer, you'll never get fat, you'll never, he went on to all this stuff. It was unbelievable. We didn't go back. <laughs> but... Um, it seems to be more common today despite the legal protections that we have. 
But individuals can be guilty of this too. I am, I'm ashamed at the memory that I have of when I was selling one of my cars. It was a Corolla that I had a number of years ago. And I, one of the reasons I decided it was time to sell is because I realized the floor was getting rusty. And it had a leak in it, and the water was getting down under the carpet, and the floor was going to rust out. I, oh, you know, I don't want to mess with that. It's time, time to sell this thing. And I was really tempted to sell that car without letting people know what I knew about that floor. And, you know, that was wicked because someone would think that they were getting a car that was in good condition, and I knew it wasn't. And uh, I'm ashamed that that was a desire, but that's the wickedness that is in our hearts that we have. And fortunately, the Lord prevented me from doing that, and I was convicted about it, and, and so I told people about that problem, and the guy that came to buy it, he was all excited about the car. And he said, oh, I know that. All, all the ones this age have that. I know how to fix that. And he bought the car. And then, okay, it was good. I, had, I could walk with God. If I'd done it the other way, I couldn't. And what was I wanting to do? Why would I trade in a comfortable walk with God and a good conscience for a few dollars? Like, what's the point? What good would it have done me? It would have, it would have done way more harm. It was, it was so foolish. It's, it's embarrassing to... to, to think about such things but a third way of cheating people is to exaggerate the service that you're providing a lot of companies promise great service to their customers and they pay for the promised service then after you get whatever it is the service isn't there they sell the product and that's the end of it they're nowhere to be seen you've all experienced that i'm sure and i would venture to say that most of you if not all of you have also cheated your employer in this way if he is paying you for a full day's work, it's your responsibility to see that you, before God, that you put in a full day's work. Do you goof off at the computer on company time? You know, do, you watch, uh, do you watch videos while, like for you know, three hours while you're at work? Um, do you chat on the phone with friends or text message or whatever and then, uh, when you're being paid for work? Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Using, you're using diverse weights in a sense. In principle, if your diligence changes when the boss is watching or not. If you're more diligent when the boss is watching. And children, this pertains to you too and the chores that you're doing around the house. Do you work harder when your parents are watching? And then you slack off when they're not, when they leave the room. Slacking off at work is no different than stealing. The Bible says in Proverbs 18, 9, that it's actually destroying things. It's like destroying things. It's equivalent to that. He was slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. So if I do, like I'm repairing a car or something and I don't really do it right, then it's like I went and, because I, I was paid to do it right, it's like I went and destroyed that car. I destroyed what was supposed to be there. I, I diminished my neighbor's wealth. And so I, it's like I went as a violent guy and, and tore something out on his car. That's the idea. Thomas Boston says, deal with men as though the eyes of God were upon you 
and deal with God as though the eyes of men are upon you. Isn't that great? I mean, there's stuff we do that if we knew someone else was watching, we wouldn't do it. What's going on there? You see, you're, God, is, God is there. So that, that's, that's what he's saying. The, the, the second part, uh, deal, with, deal with God as though the eyes of men were upon you. But then the first part is when I'm at work and uh, he says, deal with men as though the eyes of God were upon you. So the man doesn't see, but I realize that God is watching me. I need to do it for him. Six, we unjustly take from our neighbor when we do not take care of his things. This is what we already read about in Deuteronomy 22 when you see the ox or the sheep going astray. You don't hide yourself, but you certainly bring them back to your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you will do all you can to look out for his property. If he's out of town and you notice his garbage cans and his uh, blown over, then you'll go pick it up for him. You won't leave it to blow out around the street and get all lost and damaged. I heard about a house in Spryfield that got broken into in the winter and the thief left the door open. It was the dead of winter, really cold. And so then the guy was gone whose house was broken into and he came back from his vacation or whatever, his winter vacation. And when he came back, um, it was dead of winter and neighbors all around and nobody bothered to, to go and close his door or find out what happened. So not only did he get robbed, but his pipes froze and the, he had water damage to his whole house as well when he got home. Now, can you think of examples or, or circumstances in which you can look out for your neighbor's property in this way? What about when you're renting a house or a car, vacation house, something like that? When you rent a car, you should take at least as good care of it as you do of your own. To abuse it is to... It, it, to abuse it because it's not yours is to destroy your neighbor's property that God has given to your neighbor. You have no right to do that before God. Do you leave the lights on at the motel room when you wouldn't do that at home because you know, somebody else is paying the electric bill? Children, what about when you're playing with a friend's toys? Do you ruin your friend's game by throwing pieces around so that they get lost and the game is not complete or rough with his things? You, you break his things, but you're more careful with yours if you break something do you tell them about it you know do you just leave it broken and and walk away the same principle applies if you borrow something a book or something like that return it in good condition or make it right to do otherwise you impoverish your neighbor's wealth and outward estate exodus twenty two fourteen speaks about this directly and if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies the owner of it, it not being with it he shall surely make it good so you see that there is seemingly no end to, of ways that we abuse and hinder our neighbor's wealth throughout our estate. And uh, we, we ought to rather be defending the things that are our neighbor's. Jesus, uh, or, or, or just think um, how different our Savior was, how different Christ was. Like he made himself poor in order that he might make us rich. He became poor that he might make us rich. But we do the opposite thing. We make our neighbor poor so that we can make ourselves rich. It's exactly the opposite. We should be humbled. We are too often like the brazen seductress in Proverbs 30 who commits adultery and then wipes her mouth and says, I haven't done anything wrong. So I want to urge you today, beware of making excuses and evasions about this sin. Because it's very easy for us to do. 
we justify ourselves. You know, Jesus is the one that needs to justify us. We need to confess our sins and let him justify us rather than trying to justify our sin, ourselves by denying that we've done anything wrong. So beware of making excuses. Whenever there's a lot of sin, something that's done a lot, and this is done a lot, this whole sin, there are always a lot of convenient excuses and evasions that float around because everybody's using them. And you can always grab a hold of a few of those excuses and they're kind of acceptable. We come up with them, picking them up from each other. And, uh, you know, we're all yearning to justify ourselves. It's really, really foolish. Uh, God promises to us that if we walk in the light then, and confess our sins, then he will forgive us. But if we don't humble ourselves and confess our sins, then we won't be forgiven. So let's look at three excuses and evasions to avoid. First, don't use the excuse that you can steal from your neighbor because he's rich. You can feel like, well, this wasn't so bad. This guy's got a lot. He's got so much he won't even miss it. Now, if this makes us feel perfectly justified in voting for politicians that will tax the rich and and give us the benefits, we've got a problem. Now, it's true that the rich ought to be called to account if they oppress and, and they don't always pay fair wages and they should be called to account for that. And often they, they aren't. But we have no right to what is theirs just because they, have, because they have a lot. If you really believe that everybody should kind of have the same and that people shouldn't have more than others, then you have to do some real changes in your lifestyle if you're going to not be a hypocrite. Because we're a rich country. So if you're going to equalize yourself with everybody else in the world, you go, oh, no, I'll just do it with this country. Well, why, why would you draw that line? Why don't you do it with everybody if you want to do that? There, uh, a third of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. So if you want to be, have everybody equal, then that's the only fair way. Then, then you need to make sure you're living in an equal way. That's, uh, that's very important. Related to this notion that we can take from the rich because they won't miss it is the notion that we can take from the government. We think that we're not hurting anyone in particular because it's public money that we're taking. But the truth is, when you take public money, you hurt lots and lots of people at the same time. It's wrong, for example, to deliberately go on unemployment when, we, when you aren't even trying to get work. Or to deliberately take a job from a company that will lay you off after you've done enough time that you can get unemployment. And then they, some companies do that and they hire someone else and they keep cycling through and everybody only has to work you know, half the time or whatever, uh, that makes everyone have to pay more. It's stealing. You're taking not from just an individual or from a company. You're taking from everybody that's paying unemployment tax because unemployment tax is going to get a whole lot higher if everybody's abusing the system. You're taking from millions of people, not just from one or two. Second, don't use the excuse that you can steal from your neighbor because he is wicked and unjust. You know how that goes. You work for someone who doesn't pay fair wages. All the workers, of course, agree about that. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, we're oppressed here. You know, we don't get paid what we should. And, and you're pretty sure that the guy cheats people, too, that he does work business with. And he's got a fancy house, arrogant attitude, struts around. So you feel that you're perfectly justified to take a few supplies from the warehouse without uh, his knowledge for your own use or to run a few errands on company time. I'm not getting paid well anyway or to take an unauthorized break, or and after all, your employer is not paying you the way he should. So, you know, hey, I don't feel bad about this, you know, I'm not doing anything wrong. 
Maybe you're selling something, and the person you're selling it to is shrewd and dishonest, so you say, oh, this guy's shrewd, I'm going to pull one over on him. And you get away with it, and you think, ha ha, you know, I gave him what was coming to him. Well, you're not God. God is the one that judges. You don't do injustice. You don't, two wrongs don't make a right. Because this guy does wrong doesn't mean that you're justified in doing wrong to him. You know, what you're actually, you've reduced yourself to his level when you do that. You haven't done anything to make things right. You have made things wrong. Now there's more wrong going on. You're promoting and encouraging the wrong that this guy is doing. Jesus told us that we are to love our enemies as well as our friends. Did he not? And Paul told us in Romans 12, 19, that it is not for us to take vengeance, but we leave that to God. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That means you are to leave it to the civil courts, which represent God. That's how God's vengeance comes in the temporary world. He's appointed them as his representatives, and uh, they deal with him. And if they don't, then you leave it in God's hands. God will deal with them by direct judgment, either now or in the time to come. We, we, we are to do good to our enemy rather than trying to get even with him. In Romans 12, 20, it says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Judgment belongs to the Lord, not to you. God has his reasons also for allowing a wicked man to prosper. And it is not your business to decide whether someone should prosper or not. God may be enriching a wicked person in order to display his wrath on that man. Remember Pharaoh? What did God tell Pharaoh? That he said, I raised you up for this very purpose. He says, uh, Exodus 9, 16, But indeed, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God deliberately made a wicked man rich and powerful in order that he might show everyone that he was Lord by judging that man. And when he executed judgments upon Egypt, if you take it upon yourself to try to bring Pharaoh down by your own authority or some rich man down that you're not authorized to bring down, then you're fighting against the purposes of God. On the other hand, God may be prospering a wicked man in order to show mercy to that wicked man in the end, to bring glory to his name, to make the rich man an example of mercy. That was certainly the case with Zacchaeus. He was wicked and God made him rich. All that Jesus might be glorified in bringing him to repentance. Luke 19, 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It is not for you then to break God's law in order to take the riches from someone that you deem to be unworthy of those riches. It is for you to respect what God has given to your neighbor whether you think your neighbor deserves it or not. Third, don't use the excuse that you can steal from your neighbor because you are poor and needy. Okay, so we had the first one that you use the excuse that he's rich, he's not going to miss it, it's the government, it doesn't make any difference. And uh, then, then we had this, um, this second one, the guy doesn't deserve it, he's a bad person, I, I'm justified in squaring up, making things even, I'm taking vengeance on him. And then third, 
Don't use the excuse you can steal from your neighbor because you're poor and needy. But you say, doesn't, doesn't Proverbs 6.30 say, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's starving? Yes, it's true that a hungry thief will get a lot more sympathy than a, than a thief who is stealing to make himself rich, who's already rich. But that does not make it right to steal when you're hungry, just less wrong. You need to read the next verse about the hungry thief. Proverbs 6.31. It says, yet when he, the, um, not the, the hungry thief, did I say rich thief? You need to read rich, the, the next verse about the hungry thief. Proverbs 6.31. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. So being poor and hungry gives you no right to steal. It does put you in the place of temptation. The prayer of Agar in Proverbs 30 shows us this. He asks the Lord not to put him in that kind of temptation, making him poor. He says, Proverbs 30, verse 8, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. To steal, even when you're poor, is to profane God's name as the one who distributes to each according to his will. When you steal, you do not treat God as holy. You contend with what he has chosen to do as if he were a man like you. The way you respond to temptation shows where your heart is. There are many thieves who have never stolen in a blatant way because they've never had poverty that would tempt them to steal. But once they were put into that, then you find out whether they're a thief or not. Of course, God has made a couple of exceptions to his law. In effect, he has given the hungry person permission to eat an apple when they're walking through in an orchard or uh, to glean in a field, the stuff that's left behind that the reapers don't get. He also commands us to support those who cannot work. But you still have no right to steal. You should help someone that can't work. That's our duty. But it doesn't give you the right to steal if you're the one. So away with all the excuses, all the justifications about for impoverishing your neighbors. We should never impoverish our neighbor of his wealth or outward estate. Here are some things to help you in fighting against this sin. This is the last thing we'll look at. First, be sure that you have truly come to Jesus for salvation. This is so fundamental to this. When you realize that you are a sinner who deserves to go to hell forever and that Jesus has left the riches of heaven to bear the pain of hell for you, it causes you to think the way Paul thought. What did Paul say about himself as one who was saved? He said that um, he was a debtor to everyone. He was a debtor to everyone. The Lord has given you much more than you deserve. That it doesn't even, it doesn't even seem right to you to have anything when you realize how much God has given you. I've got so much more than I deserve from the Lord. He's been so good to me. That's the kind of attitude. And it seems utterly repulsive to think of unjustly taking that which belongs to your neighbor if you think like that. Now, few people think like that. Besides that, until you come to Jesus, you do not have the Holy Spirit. When you come to Jesus, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit writes God's law on your heart so that you both desire to obey God's commandments and you are enabled to actually obey them. He gives you a new heart that leads to a new life. And if you have come to Christ, 
Then a second thing to do is meditate often on the goodness of God. Take great delight in how kind the Father is to all his creatures, giving them the things that they have, even though we do not deserve the least of his gifts. So you're looking at other people and saying, look at all that God has given to them. God is so kind. When you delight in seeing God's goodness and his provision for your neighbor, it will change your attitude toward your neighbor's possessions. Instead of wanting to take what is his or not bothering to take care of it, you're delighting in the fact that your gracious God has given him these good things. You'll be thankful for that and you'll want to, you'll want to take care of his things. You'll want to make sure that you don't damage or deprive him in any way. And you'll want to give to other people because it's part, it will bring glory to God. It will bring thanksgiving from that person to God. And yet another help against stealing is to look at the warnings of Scripture about stealing. We need to think twice about trading in our relationship with God for a few extra dollars. I mentioned that earlier. Um, Thomas Boston refers to it as a terrible trade, to trade in God's blessing for your neighbor's goods. See, that's what I was talking about with selling the car, that I'm going to trade in God's blessing, I'm going to trade in God's smile and favor upon me, in order to get a few extra, what kind of a trade is that? Zechariah the prophet confirms that this is exactly what you do when you give yourself over to a life of stealing. Zechariah 5, 3 and 4, he says that the Lord said, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. That's quite a curse. If you want to have that curse removed, then stop justifying yourself about stealing and come to Christ who died so that, you might, so that he might justify you. Again, justifying yourself doesn't work. He's the one that justifies. Then you will find mercy instead of a curse. Blessed be his name who takes away all of our sins and leads us to repentance so that we prosper our neighbor instead of impoverishing our neighbor. Please stand and and let's pray. Gracious Lord, we have... um, We've heard much today about different ways that we diminish our neighbor's wealth and outward estate. We see, Lord, that truly we need to recognize that you are the Lord who who gives our neighbor what he has. And we should be glad that our neighbor has what you gave him. And we should desire to preserve what you have given him. We should desire to honor you in the way that we do business, in the way we act in the world. Why is it that we're always unhappy with the way that you have distributed wealth? We pray, Lord, that you would help us to to learn to rejoice in what you have done. We know, Lord, that there may be changes coming in our society as we see economic troubles on the horizon. And we pray that you would help us, O Lord. We pray that you would help us not to not to be um, not not to go the wrong way, I guess, when if, if we do have to tighten our belts, that we would realize, Lord, that we have been given far more than what we deserve. We are debtors, Lord. You've, if we have salvation, 
we've been given so much more, Lord, than we could ever repay. And so we pray that we would be willing to bear patiently if you should choose to take away some of our outward wealth. But Father, help us also, even at this present time, that we would be ready to give to those that have need, that we would not be those who take away from our neighbor, but those who who give to our neighbor. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who became poor in order to make us rich. We pray that we would follow his example, not with a kind of a, 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 a that, that we're oppressed doing it, that we're unhappy doing it, but that we would do it as those who are pleased to do it because we love the Lord. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to be like that, we pray. Only by your grace can we, can we really live that way. So, Lord, our eyes are upon you. Be gracious to us, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing song is 10B, a song related to what we've been looking at. 10B, blessing of the Lord. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen.